Amen. You may be seated. We've just been singing Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a glorious truth that that is this morning. We praise the Lord that it is Him who enables us to live the Christian life, and that plays into our message this morning in just a few moments. Before we go to the message, I want to share with you just a little bit about my week. Marcy and I, and uh, also uh, Eduardo and Alex Pinto Vidal and um, Tommy Morgado and several others went to the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. In fact, there were several others there. In fact, there was a 25-year high attendance um, of that convention. It meets annually, normally, um, but we skipped last year because of COVID. And listen to this, there were more than 20,000 people in that room, and uh, it was great. Um, now, just look at those crowd pictures. I mean, it's really kind of amazing. Um, the uh, program was fantastic. Um, there was standing room only. I know that you can barely see it, but the, uh, there was standing room only in the, uh, in the auditorium. And uh, it was in part because we had not met last year because of COVID. And also, the world has a lot of issues that are going on. So there were many issues before our convention. And um, I, I want to share with you a little bit about that. It was a very good convention. If you only keep up with the convention by Twitter, you were expecting I don't know what. I mean, uh, you know, Twitter and social media are very, very, I mean, they're useful in some ways, but they're also very harmful um, to especially issues of unity. Um, I want to say to you, there's no doubt that there was spirited debate and there were concerns and, you know, there was, there was difficulty sometimes as we were working through various issues as a convention, but it was gloriously positive as well and unified, wonderful. Um, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention voted three years ago to bring in another name alongside our traditional name of Southern Baptist Convention. We're also called Great Commission Baptists. So, a few years ago, we said, you know, Southern Baptists are in New York. <laughs> Southern Baptists are in Canada. Southern Baptists are in Seattle. Southern Baptists are everywhere. And in light of the fact that we're no longer geographically um, uh, held in the South, we said maybe it's better to call ourselves Great Commission Baptists. And I am one who agrees with that. I, I think that that is a good thing. Um, as well, you know, there, were, there was difficulty. So the Baptists came into being um, in part through the issues of the Civil War. And it's just great for us to say, yeah, that was then, and that's who we were. And, you know, the Lord has worked in our hearts, and the Lord has worked across the, across the decades and the generations. And um, we, are, we are all about evangelism. And that's what the emphasis was. Um, I, one of the things I'm very thankful and proud to be a Baptist on is, our, of course, our basic and most true Baptist doctrine and beliefs is that but also our emphasis on evangelism, our emphasis on world missions. Um, our convention took some very strong stances on the issue of abortion, and um, we continue to want to see that great scourge of our society repudiated and, um, and the, the holocaust of abortion come to an end. The convention also took some very strong stances on the issues of racism, um, a tremendous resolution 
um, was prepared by the executive committee that very, very clearly denounced um, much of the issues of racism, and um, that, was, that uh, resolution was, was gladly embraced, um, ultimately. Um, some of the wording issues and other things um, uh, sometimes are what you debate and what you work through, but I'm very proud to be part of a convention that very clearly in the most fundamental ways um, says that God is for all people that um, obviously are made in his image, and we are every human being on the planet made in his image, and uh, we rejoice in that. So it was a, it was a good week, um, ultimately, I think, uh, a good outcome. The person that I wanted to be elected was not elected. I was rooting for Al Mohler. Um, to be our next president, and, um, but Ed Litton is a faithful Bible-believing pastor from Alabama who is a godly man. He pastors a multiracial, uh, multi-ethnic church and uh, a wonderful man of God, and I'm sure that he's going to do a good work. We need to pray for them and pray for the executive committee as they continue to lead us. So that's a little bit of a report on our Baptist life, and um, our church um, voluntarily participates with that. Somebody asked, does the convention um, tell us what to preach or what to do? Never. As Southern, excuse me, as Baptists, Baptists of any different denomination of Baptists, as Baptists, one of the distinctives that we believe and hold to is the total autonomy of each individual church. We answer to no one except the Lord as our church family. We do not answer to the convention. Um, we stand, and we believe that, that that's what we see in Scripture, is that, that we stand faithful to God um, as uh, independent uh, congregations voluntarily coming together, voluntarily, voluntarily com uh, contributing together so that we can send missionaries, so that we can plant churches, so that we can do theological education. So we have six Southern Baptist seminaries that are spread throughout the United States. Um, every morning when we give, part of what we give goes to support those seminaries, and that is very, very important work. We have young men and young women that are going to those schools, and we're very proud of that. There are other ones besides Southern, by the way. Southern's not the only one that we have. And Boyce. Now we're sending practically everyone to Boyce, but um, and I love that school. Um, but uh, there are some others as well, and we we support those. Well, let's turn our attention to God's word into First John. Please open your Bible to First John. We come to message number eight. If you do not have a sermon outline, we have some guys that are going to come make their way down here right now, and you just lift your hand. Um, I think we may need a few right here on the front row, Eli. Um, for my mom and dad. Uh, mom and dad, church starts at 10.30, by the way, so just, uh, just kidding, just kidding. Mom and dad drove across town to be here. Um, for those of you that are on time to worship, you usually get a bulletin if they don't whisk you past everyone, um, but um, I just want to commend you uh, as we come to study the Word of God. So we've been looking at this glorious little letter of 1 John. And today we come, and the title of the message is, Salvation Test, Do You Love and Obey Him? Salvation Test, Do You Love and Obey Him? Let's remember in our review, for those of you that are new to us this morning, maybe there's some folks that are here for the very first time, I want you to see where we've been, and everything above this line of asterisks is, is what we've studied. This is about seven sermons 
boiled down to a few statements. The first thing is, is that we're studying a letter by a guy named John, and he was one of the disciples, and he was an apostle. And what does an apostle mean? What, what is an apostle? Does anybody remember? That's right, one who is sent. Put that above apostle, if you, especially if you didn't remember that. It's one who is sent out, one who is sent out. So commissioned with a job. So this is one who is sent out. So a disciple uh, is a believer, learner, teacher. That's what a disciple is. But an apostle is one who is sent out for that purpose. Um, notice the next thing. The genre. This is a letter. There's different books of the Bible that are different styles of writing. This is a letter, and it's written to churches. It's an open letter to churches. And it's artistic. Here's an important part. It's artistic. It's repeating in some ways. This is the way John is writing it. It's interwoven, so it, it links together these, these chapters, these few chapters. It's layered, which means it gets deeper and deeper and deeper as we go. And it's progressively revealing so it progressively reveals what John wants the churches to see. Now remember with me as well, the setting. This is a critical transition time at the end of the eyewitness era. This is the last eyewitness alive. One of the last ones you say, eyewitness, eyewitness of what? Is that like news program? What do you mean? No, eyewitness. This is, these are the apostles that were sent out by Jesus. He was the last one standing at this point when he wrote this letter around 90 AD. So notice here with me that's very important in that regard. There were doctrinal problems in the churches. You remember that? Fill that in. There were doctrinal problems in the churches around John. They were confused about sin. They were confused about the nature of the heart before God. They were confused, and very, very often um, there were people who were um, more of influence by the philosophy around them than by the truth that had been taught to them. And so new heresies were circulating around. Like you can do whatever you want in the flesh as long as you think right and your heart is right. You can do whatever you want with your body. Well, that is patently false and untrue. All of the New Testament really lays that out. The teachings of Jesus, as we're going to see this morning, um, are, are correcting that very falsehood. So there were not only doctrinal problems, when you have doctrinal problems, then you're going to have behavior problems because we do what we believe. And so behavioral problems in the life of the church, there was hatred toward one another, there was rejection toward one another. Some of you grew up in churches where th that really struggled with that. I'm so thankful that Sheridan Hills, you know, I mean, we've been pretty unified. We've been pretty unified for decade after decade after decade, and it's been a loving congregation. Um, I just want to say that this, was, this is not always the case in, in churches. Many of you have experienced that yourself, where there was great trouble and, and hardship in that regard. And what happens when we get our eyes off of Jesus and when we get our eyes onto the things of the world, trouble comes in, division comes in. You see, many fill this in. Many were loving the world instead of loving God and loving others. And so John has a lot to say in this letter about not loving the world or the philosophies of the world. Verse 5 is perhaps the central one in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5 is central premise in the whole letter. And notice what it says there in this outline. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. And let's read it out loud together, the end of that statement. It says, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So that's one of the 
key things that John wants us to see, that God is perfectly good. In him is no evil. There is no darkness in him. Satan wants you to doubt God. Satan wants to impugn God's character to you. And what John is reiterating to us is, oh no, we have a perfect heavenly father. And in him is no darkness at all. So notice these very quickly. So far, the Apostle John wants us to know the reality and the centrality of Christ in all things. That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then, as we just said, the perfect nature of God. That's verse 5 in chapter 1. And then the sinful nature of humanity. You remember there were three different verses there that dealt with that, talking about the fact that we are sinners. Look at the next one. But for true Christians, it's the forgiven nature of those who who are in Christ, one of the key verses in all of the Bible. Dad, one of the earliest verses that you taught me was 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. And it says this, and if you know that verse out loud together, it's the if we confess verse. If you know that verse out loud, would you just say it out loud with me? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to put it up on the screen right here. Guys, go ahead and put up that next slide. And notice it is verse 9. No, I'm sorry. Go, to the, go back one. Or go back to where the white slide is. Chapter 1. There we go. Look at the second arrow. Here is the verse. This is a key verse. And we want to just remember that God in his great grace and mercy and forgiveness comes and cleanses us. So in verse 9, look what it says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a key part of the gospel that is so beautifully central to John's letter. And then look at the last statement here. Even when true Christians sin, Christ is still their advocate. Even when true Christians sin, Christ is still their advocate. He does not leave them. He's not saying, oh, you blew it? Forget it. The amazing thing is, for those who really have been converted to Christ, for those who have been born again, for those who have been regenerated in Christ, that they have been born again, the picture is this, is that God doesn't just leave us in our sin. In fact, the Lord Jesus still advocates for us. And one of the questions that I asked you to think about this week was, how does that affect your Christianity? How does that affect the way you feel about Jesus? The fact that even when you sin against him, even when you disregard his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, even when you do that, he still advocates for you. I hope and pray that that shows you how much he loves you. I hope and pray that that shows you how much he calls you to his grace and to his love. So he's still our advocate even when we blow it. Now let's come and let's remember again our main passage. The box on the top of the page is our main passage, and we've already studied verses 1 and 2. That's why they're the light print. But the dark print, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, are what we study very quickly this morning. We will be looking at all four of these verses. But look up at verse 1. He begins the chapter with saying, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We preached a whole message on that. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And now our text this morning. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, what does it say? Is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so we see this in verses 3 to verse 6. It starts off with how we live and it ends with how we live, showing us this great truth that it will determine um, the great picture of the evidence of your salvation is determined on whether or not you actually obey. We're not saying that your salvation depends upon that, but this is the indication of whether or not you truly know God. So number one is this. I want you to see number one. The Apostle John wants true believers to know that they are saved. We see that 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 is his writing, and you know, if the Apostle John wants that and he wrote that, who does it actually mean wants you to know that? God, because God has inspired John to write what he's written. And here we see, not only in this little book of, of the Bible, that First John declares that, that God wants us to know that, but we see that throughout his word, that he wants his children to know that they are um, fathered by him. Look at verse 3, it says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. So if you want to know that you know him, Notice what it's saying there. And also in chapter 3, verse 14, in chapter 4, verse 13, in chapter 5, and verse 13. In chapter 5 and verse 13, it says, These things have been written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. And so there is this great thing that God doesn't want you to wonder whether or not you know whether or not you know him and he knows you. The second thing that we see in these verses, verses 3 through 6, is that the Apostle John wants faux believers, F-A-U-X, or false, or fake believers. But the Apostle John wants faux believers to realize they are not saved. And so he's saying, look, you can know that you are saved by looking at how you live. Do you live in obedience to Christ? And he says, it, you can know that you're not saved if you do not live in obedience to Christ. Look at verse 4. Look what it says. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Now notice here that word commandments. I want to just go ahead and clarify. That is not talking about the Ten Commandments. That is the word of instructions. It is not talking about the law. The word that is used here is not nomos or law. The word that is used here is the instructions of Christ, the instructions of the Lord. And it says here in very direct terms, you know, a short book of the Bible usually has pithy language in it because it's not mincing words. And this is a short book of the Bible. He says, is a liar. That's a very, very strong accusation. In fact, if you think about the great character of God and the fact that God is truth and in him 
He is light. There's no darkness in him. There's no falsehood in him. One of the most, um, the, the most critical things that you could ever say about someone is to call them a liar. When we look at the holiness of God and the character of God and what we are called to be and who we are called to be like him in truthfulness, to call someone a liar is a very, very powerful accusation. And so he's saying here to the person who says, I know him, but ignores what Jesus told him to do, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. So even stated in a double way here, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. And that is what we want. That's what he wants unbelievers to realize that their behavior is showing that they do not know God. Look at number three with me. The Apostle John provides various tests by which people can assess themselves. And so in 1 John, over these chapters, these five chapters that we're going to study, we're going to see various tests. Now, this is the test, fill it in, of obedience. This is the test of obedience. The question is, do you obey? Do you obey the commands of Christ? And that's what the great test is. If you do not obey the commands of Christ in your life, then this is saying to us, you do not know God. Let's look and let's see a little bit here. There's an important box on the page this year with a little bit of a gray background. And I've made this as an important clarification because whenever we begin talking about works, we need to be very careful that we differentiate that the work of Christ is what saves us. Our works do not save us, but in fact, our works simply indicate that we have been saved and that we are uh, honoring God with our life as we go. So an important point of clarification is this. Obedience is not, fill it in, the means of gaining our own salvation. Obedience is not the means of gaining our... God does not tell us what to do in how to live our life, in the things that we're supposed to do, and by our obedience we are saved. That is a false statement. Now, this is an important issue because of this. Most people that are in the world today that have any inkling about Christianity or most other religions believe this. If you are good or if you do what the religion tells you to do, then you will be okay with God. In fact, there are many, many Great Commission Baptists or Southern Baptists that show up at our 46,000 Southern Baptist churches um, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, decade after decade after decade, that are not clear on this. In fact, they ultimately are trusting in their church attendance or their giving or their serving or their quote-unquote being a good person to make them right with God for their salvation. And we know that simply by asking a few simple questions of how is it that you're right with God, and when someone begins talking about the fact that I go to church, or I was baptized, or they start talking about various other things that are in themselves, in their minds, works, then we come away with the understanding of this. So, obedience is not the means of gaining our own salvation. Obedience is the fill it in, it is the evidence 
of receiving God's salvation. So if we are saved, it's because God saved us. And so that's, a, that's an important thing. In Psalm 51, it says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. It doesn't say there, my salvation. Now, we can talk about our salvation, but we need to, we need to really understand that we're not doing the saving. If there's any saving going on, it is by the gracious hand of God that comes down and causes us to see our sin and sheds the light of faith in our heart that we might believe upon Christ. So obedience is the evidence of receiving God's salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are key verses, but 10 is also included in here because 10 talks about the importance of works but it puts them in the right perspective for us. So look what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace, that's God's undeserved favor, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That God gives the gift of faith that we would believe. And so, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Look what it says there. It is the gift of God. Can you circle that? It is the gift of God. That's what salvation is. It is the gift of God. Look at verse 9. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. And then he goes on to talk about how works fit into this. For we are his workmanship. You see, God does the work. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. You see, works are important. They are just not what saves you. There's one good work that saves you, and it is the death of Christ on the cross. Now, we, when we say the death of Christ on the cross, I want to be careful to also include the resurrection, because if Christ be not, be not raised, then our faith is in vain. So his death and his resurrection, that is the work of God that brings to us salvation, because Christ lives, we can live. And that is what he does. But why does he save us? For good works, for his glory. So God prepared these works beforehand that we should, look what it says there at the end of verse 10, that we should what? Walk in them. You see, this is important to God. This is important that you just don't come down an aisle when you're nine years old, fill out a card, ask Jesus into your heart, let somebody get you wet in the river, the stream, the ocean, or a baptismal pool and think that, you know, it's over. No, that's just the beginning. If you have true faith in Jesus that he has come down and worked in your heart and moved in you and given you faith for life in him, then he has called you to now serve him with your life, to live out his life in you. And so it's just very important that we clarify. You see, faith in Christ, this is the next statement, faith in Christ's atoning death on the cross is the root of our salvation. When he dies on the cross in our place, that's the atoning death. We studied that last Sunday, the propitiation for our sin, that he comes and satisfies the wrath of God in our place. God's wrath poured out on Christ, just as TJ just prayed, that we are grateful to that. Every Sunday when we get together, we say thank you for the cross. That's not just an evangelistic moment in TJ's prayer. 
It shouldn't be that. We need to all, when we gather together, we should ever be grateful for the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ for our sins. I remember that when we were serving overseas, there was a young lady that came to join one of our teams as a journeyman. It was a single young lady, graduated from college, would come spend usually a year, two years, or three years together, and Joanna Brown came and stayed with us. And every time Joanna Brown prayed, whenever our team was gathered, she would immediately say, most of all, Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Dying on the cross for our sins, going all the way to the grave, and being risen from the dead that we might live. And you know, I remember as I was getting to know Joanna and hear her reiterate the gospel in practically every prayer that she prayed, I became in love with that as I started to say, wow, what a beautiful thing for us to remember constantly. Here, I was the team leader, she is the young college graduate, and she was teaching me, reminding me of the centrality of the gospel, reminding me that moment by moment by moment, we must be grateful for a self-sacrificing God. This is what love is, that the creator of the universe would come and lay down his life for us. So faith in Christ's atoning death on the cross is the root of our salvation. Our obedience, our obedience to Christ's commands is the fruit of our salvation. So that's, that's the evidence, that's the fruit, that's what it produces. If we're saved, we're going to have the fruit, we're going to have the produce of God's salvation in us. Now, we've said this last phrase here many times in the life of our church, and some of you may be able to identify it and help me. You see, we do not obey because we want to be saved. We do not obey because we want to be saved. Instead, we obey because why? Because we are saved. Now, there's a lot of people that they've got that mixed up. They think if you don't obey, then you're not going to be saved. But that is a false statement. That is not the picture. The evidence is, it, the picture is, if you don't obey, then it indicates that you are not saved. That's what John is saying to us. It's not about um, our saving ourselves, but it's all about him doing it, not, doing it in us. So uh, let's go back up at the top box on the page, and let's remember the passage once again as we glide through it here at the last part. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. So in verse 3, and by this we have come, that we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So fill it in, a transformed life is evident by faith and works together. So it's not just the issue of I asked Jesus into my heart, now I'm going to go live however I want. The, the, the picture is, is that it is the, the work of faith in our life that evidences the transformed life. Now, when we studied James a few years ago, we dealt with this issue in detail. We spent, in fact, 
several sermons on uh, James chapter 2. But notice with me, James chapter 2 and verse 14. James is dealing with this. And remember, and this is interesting, that 1 John is the last letter written to the churches in 90 A.D., whereas the book of James is likely, the letter of James is likely the first letter written to all of the churches some 50 years before. And so notice here what James says. In verse 14 he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, so you have a church member, you have somebody near to you, they're, they're, I mean, they don't even have proper clothing, and they can't even eat. And notice this, so, so this is somebody that's, you're, that's close to you, verse 15, proper clothing, they're poorly clothed and lacking in food, verse 16, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. So you bless them with your mouth and you ignore them in their need. Without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, underline it, is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith, circle it, by my works. You see, so it is completely unreasonable to think that someone would know God by faith, be saved by God, and not act like God has called them to act in good works. So this is the picture that a transformed life is evident by both faith and works together. That's the evidence of it. The next statement here. Jesus made clear that obedience is the test of our love for him. Jesus made clear that obedience is the test of our love for him. And I want you to see it in verse 5. Look what it says in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Now that word, the love, that phrase, the love of God is perfected, I believe the NIV does a a finer translation here when they say the love for God. The love for God is perfected. It is in the objective genitive case, and that's a technical phrase, a technical issue here that when when you see this construction in this setting, it could very easily mean for God. So that, and that makes even more sense to us when we see this. Look at verse 5. But whoever keeps it, his word in him truly, the love for God is perfected. And it, it, the idea is, is that this is the completion of love for God, that you're obeying, that you're obeying him. And so notice this here. Jesus says this very thing in several different places in the book of John and other gospels. Look at John chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you will what? Did everybody see that? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look at John 14, 21 in verse 23 and 24. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him, will show myself to him. 
Judas asks a question, and then Jesus responds. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will what? Keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Friends, that's salvation. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the words that you hear is not, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Flip the page. Look at one more passage where Jesus is talking about this. In John 15, in verse 8 through 10. John 15, verses 8 through 10. Look at verse 8. It says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and then look at this, and underline it, and so prove to be my disciples. Underline that. You see, it's the fruit, it's the evidence, it's the obedience. It's, it's that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The word abide means to live, to dwell, to stay with, to abide in my love. Now, everybody read verse 10 out loud together. Everybody read verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you think Jesus is emphasizing something here? Over and over and over again, we see, if you love me, you're going to obey me. If you love me, you're going to do the things that I say. If you don't do the things I say, you don't love me. So I want you to see something here, though. So remember and be encouraged that when you are obeying Jesus, you are loving Jesus. It's a cool thing to think about that. If you're wondering, how can I obey Jesus? It's, excuse me, how can I love Jesus? I obey him. Now, one of the ways, Cheryl Ann this morning is, is in Hawaii. Um, she's going to church in Hawaii when she gets up in a few hours. Um, spoke with her yesterday. She's a travel nurse there. She's going to be there for a few more weeks. But when Cheryl and Andrea were, were little girls, um, we would often ask them some questions, and this is kind of in a little bit of a catechistic form. We would, we would ask certain questions in order to teach them certain things. And one of the things when they were very little we used to say is, you know, how can we love Jesus? Can you hug him? No, you can't hug him. Can you bring him a glass of water? No, you can't bring it. Can you bring him some dessert? No, we, we, we can't bring him a glass of water, can't bring him a, a, a plate of dessert here in our house. But we can love him by telling him so. We can pray to him and tell him that we love him. But the main way that you can love him is by obeying him. That's what we told them over and over and over again. How can we love Jesus? By obeying him. And that is so critically true. And Jesus, he said that when you're, when you're obeying me and caring for others, when you're obeying me and proclaiming the truth, when you're obeying me and doing these things, especially even to the least of those that are around you, Jesus said, you're doing it unto me. So when you love others that need you and that need your love and your care, you are loving him. So remember and be encouraged that when you're obeying Jesus, you are loving Jesus. The next statement is also important. It comes from verse 6. 
In verse 6, the Apostle John sums up this test by true, of true faith by saying, if we are true Christ followers, then we ought to walk just as Jesus walked. Look at that, what it says in verse 6 in the box up there on the top. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So how did Jesus walk? Here's the answer in obedience to the Father. We are told to mimic Jesus. We are told to follow his glorious example. Look at John chapter 6 and verse 38. In verse 38 it says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but what does it say? But the will of him who sent me. So Jesus was obeying the Father. Look at John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak, look what it says, just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So here we begin to see, this is part of where we see the beautiful work of the Trinity together. Now, you can't fully explain the Trinity. You can't fully understand the Trinity. If you try to, you'll blow a fuse. You'll overheat. It'll, it'll quit. You know, you'll have to reboot. So, but there are, there are some key things that we can understand. One of the things that we see here is that the beautiful Trinity is working in perfect harmony together. That's one key thing that you can understand about the Trinity, is that the Trinity works in harmony Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect harmony, exalting one another, glorifying one another, and honoring one another in perfect unity. And so we start to see this beautiful relationship that we are called to mimic. So look at John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. Look at the next statement here. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is going in to the most radically... Um, unintuitive, non-intuitive um, thing that could ever be, that the creator of the universe would lay down his perfect life for our sin. I mean, that no one saw coming. And that is what God says, this is how you know what ultimate love is, is that the creator of the universe is going to come lay down his life for your life. This is what real sacrifice means. And so he did this in obedience to the Father. This charge I have received from my Father. Look at John 14 and verse 31. So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. Isn't that beautiful? So the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. I believe that's the NIV or the Berean, I'm not sure. But it's this beautiful picture that we come and we obey so the world may see. Now, I want you to see that there are some powerful rewards in obedience. So we obey because of what Christ has done for us. But let's not forget the benefits of the Lord. Let's not forget 
the powerful rewards of the Lord. And I love this section. I felt like the Lord just really laid this on my heart to encourage you. First of all, obedience means this. This is the key to joy. There are many Christians who are not happy Christians because they're not very obedient. They are somewhat obedient, maybe, if they are true Christians, but they're not truly obedient. Listen, you, you show me an obedient Christian, and I will show you someone that is living with joy. In fact, look at John chapter 15, verses 10 through 11. This is on the screen in front of you. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. What does it say? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. So that has to do with keeping commandments, his commandments, his instructions. So if you want to be a joyful Christian, obey the Lord. He will keep you on the edge, trusting in him. Some of the things that he calls you to do, you won't understand. But then you'll see some of the things you will, he calls you to do will require that you trust him. You see, if you're just playing it safe, you're not going to experience the thrill of walking with God. But when you begin to obey him more and more and more, he loves to test your faith, to grow your faith, to stretch you, and you will see that he is with you. You will see that he is your joy as he shows himself mighty in your life. So obedience is the key to joy. Obedience is also the key to safety. You better obey if you want to stay safe. There is great danger in the world. There is great safety in Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever, what does it say? Does the will of, of God abides forever. You see, one is going away. One is passing away. And friends, that means death. That means destruction. In fact, we even use that phrase. Oh, I'm sorry, you know, he passed away or she passed away. And that's that's what it is. It is going to death. The world is going to death, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. How do we do the will of God? It's the works that God has created for us in salvation. We studied that in Ephesians 2, verse 10. Now look at the next one here. Powerful reward of obedience is it's our, it's our witness. This is our witness. When we obey the Lord, we are witnessing. We are showing the world who Jesus is. And that is the whole picture that we would show the world. Look at John 14, 31 on the screen in front of you. But I do as the Father commanded me, this is Jesus speaking, but I do as the Father commanded me, so that, read it out loud, so that the world may know that I love the Father. You see, when we obey Christ, the world sees that we're with him. So our, our lives are going to look different. Um, when people come into this church and they start to see how we relate to one another, they should see our love for one another, our acceptance of one another, our interest in one another, and, and that, should, that should say to them that something is different. Friends, this is part of the reason I'm asking you in about five minutes when we end this service, I'm asking you to go make a plan to go to dinner with somebody you don't know here, to make a new friend. 
and to, to grow the fellowship of this church. Don't just run for the door. In fact, when I finish preaching in just a minute, I'm going to ask that none of you run for the parking lot. I want to encourage you never to do that. I mean, if you've, I mean, I had a daughter that used to do shift work at Joe DiMaggio, and we have police officers or we have other people who come on shift work, and they have to leave. I mean, they, they stay as long as can, and they oh, i got to go, and zoom, they have to go. Listen, that's rare. There goes somebody right now. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> so I, I want to encourage you. Church is not, is not over when we, when we end the, sing the last song or when the sermon is over. Um, this gradually goes into our experience of the week as we love one another, come to know one another. You say, well, I don't know anyone. Well, hang around, and I'll beat somebody if they don't go talk to you. So, I mean, seriously, when we, I'm kidding, but, but when the picture is this, we should be looking around, not just to enjoy our close friends, the people that you connect with constantly and all of that, that, that you know, take a few minutes. The two-minute rule is all about that, to just open your heart to meet somebody new. Koinonia is all about that. And this is glorifying to God. This is, this is what shows the world that we are with God. And so this is an important part of this. This is our witness. Look at the last one here. And this is from our text today. The whole text today is saying this. This is the key to our confidence. Obedience is the key to our confidence that we are with God. That when we obey him, and that we feel the thrill of his life in our life. His power causing us to obey. Because, you know, we haven't talked about this, but... Galatians 2.20 says that when you're obeying him, it's not you doing it. We just sang it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Galatians 2.20 says it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so this is the power to obey. It is Jesus in his spirit strengthening us to obey and to walk in his ways. So let's go up, look at the top of the page, and let's just read it one more time before I ask a few questions. And just notice this. This is our confidence. Verse 3, it says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we do what? Keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 5, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, or his love for God is is seen and, and known. Look at the next part. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And how did he walk? How did Jesus walk? Obeying the Father. And so we walk like he walked. So here's a few questions for you right now and a few questions for you this week. Number one, do you sometimes confuse the root, excuse me, the fruit of salvation with the root of salvation? Do you sometimes confuse that? That's a question for you to think about this week. Do you, do you sometimes think, oh, I have to do these things because I, I want to be saved? You know, the world really thinks that way. And so the world's thinking can make its way into our thought processes and our motivations. And I, I just want to encourage you to, to really come to, 
to study and to appreciate and to meditate and to be amazed by the root of our salvation, which is Christ coming and laying down his life for us, his work on the cross. May the root of our salvation so deeply go down into the great glory of God's truth that we bear fruit instead of being confused and getting it the other way around. There's some of you, you really need to focus on that. You really need to focus. Have I been confused about the fruit of salvation and the root of salvation? What happens when I am confused about that? I mean, there's, there's some things to discuss there. I, I, I think it would be worth it. When, when you start living your life in obedience, trying to, uh, trying to gain God's salvation or subconsciously seeking that in some way or, or another, um, I, I believe that that affects our lives, and that's exhausting. Look at number three. How can we know what Christ has commanded us to do? Some people would say, okay, well, you preached a whole message about obeying his commands. Well, what are his commands? Well, how can you know that? How can you know what Jesus has instructed you to do? There's some people who would say, I don't know what he's instructed me to do. And I ask the question, well, how can you know that? And they go, I don't know. Well, let me, let me just encourage you to make a little note here. The Word of God. The Word of God. If you want to know what Jesus has commanded you to do, start reading the Word of God. Study the Word of God. These are the eternal words of truth that He has commissioned you. You better know what they are. And so I want to just commend to you, how can we know His Word? And it's not just in reading and studying it. It's beginning to to hear it preached and taught in new ways. You say, well, I'm here. Good, that's a start. But that's only a start. Look at number four. What does it mean if we make no effort to learn or obey his commands? What does it mean for those of you who are going to get up and leave this sermon today and it will not change one thing? Especially for those of you that would say, well, I appreciate that, but that's nice. Are you going to appropriate it? Are you going to live it? You see, if we make no effort to learn and obey his commands, then it indicates that we do not know God. Let's stand together this morning. Father in heaven, you sent Jesus to obey and to show us the way, not only to show us the way, but to secure the way through his death and his resurrection. And Lord, you have told us to obey all that he has commanded. And Father, I pray this morning that we would look at our own lives, that we would look and say, do I obey do I love him? Is my love for God being perfected in obedience? Is it being proven out in obedience? Lord, I pray that we would be a people who really apply what you've said. That we'd not just be cultural Christians that come and sit and soak and then go home unchanged. But Lord, that we would be people who say, Lord, your great glory on the earth is worthy 
of my pursuit. It is worthy of my obedience. It is worthy of me speaking for you to a lost and dying world. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and that you would move in our hearts, that we would be obedient followers of Jesus. Lord, that it would affect what we do with our time. It would affect what we watch, what we study, what we read. It would affect how we spend, Lord, our money. Lord, that we would invest our lives in your kingdom and in your work. Lord, that our neighbors would matter to us. Lord, that our fellow church members would matter to us. Lord, that those that are suffering around the world and those that are in the dark corners of the world without Christ, that we would care that you have said, go and tell them a Savior has come. So Lord, I pray that we would obey, that we would obey all that you have commanded. Give us that grace, Lord. Give us the strength. Convict our hearts. Lord, thank you that your commandments are not too burdensome, that you do not overwhelm us beyond what we can take. You've just called us to come, sit at your feet, and to do as you say. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us with that. Lord, for those who have been confused about the root versus the fruit of salvation, I pray that today that they would place their trust in the root, that they wouldn't try to manufacture fruit or live by that, but, Lord, that they would come to trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross when he said, it is finished, paid in full, that that would be the place of their faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing, take my life and let it be consecrated to thee.